everyone. This is The Crime Cafe, your podcasting source of great crime, suspense, and thriller writing. I'm your host, Debbie Mack. Before I bring on my distinguished guest, I'll just remind you that The Crime Cafe 9-book set is only 99 cents on Amazon and Smashwords until July 31st. Just go to DebbieMack.com, D-E-B-B-I-M-A-C-K.com, and either click on My Books or Crime Cafe to get the buy links. And now it's my pleasure to bring on the awesome Timothy Hallinan. Thanks so much for being here, Tim. Totally my pleasure. I like distinguished, too. Distinguished is what you are. You amaze me with your, um, not only your output, but your just capacity to do so many different things. I mean, we work uh, I, together. I come... Yeah. I'm sorry. I come from a multi. I come from a multitasking family. My uh-huh. parents both had short attention spans, so we sort of learned to keep a bunch of balls in the air at the same time. Well, that's a useful thing, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, being able to to do that is essential these days. But um, for everybody. <laughs> but uh, I did want to uh, say that uh, you have worked on a number of projects with me, including. Uh, the, uh, I'm sorry, the anthology Shaken, as I recall. Correct. All Correct. those wonderful short stories about Japan and um, the uh, the collection of writing, you know, writing uh, advice essays. I'm trying to remember the oh, name. Oh, hello. That, um, I can't either. Um, <laughs> Making story. Making story. Thank you. Twenty-one writers 21 on how writers. they plot. And right, on how like, they plot. Yeah. The, the just, Japan book, by the way, raised close to a hundred thousand dollars for uh, assistance on the ground around Fukushima, where the reactor melted yes. down. So that that was really gratifying. That that was an amazing. It was that was wonderful. I'm so glad I was able to participate in that. I'm glad to hear that you raised a lot of money. We raised a lot of money. So, yeah, it was great. And, you know, I had this problem because if the money had come to me, I would have been liable to the, to the IRS for it, even exactly. if I just turned around and gave it away. So we just arranged for the whole thing to go directly to a charity uh, that was involved in, in that particular effort. Mm-hmm. It's excellent. It's excellent the way that was done. And uh, so before we talk about pulp which is a very interesting book. I want to discuss your other books, since I got started reading you with the Poe Rafferty thrillers. Mm-hmm. And what I love about the series is not only the characters, but the setting. So apart from the fact that you've lived part-time in Bangkok, what prompted you to write this series? Um, Bangkok is, is the most interesting city I know. Um, and the reason it's so interesting is that it has the greatest, um, the, the greatest, what is the word I'm looking for? The, the, the extremes are so enormous. Mm. I mean, you'll walk down the street not knowing whether you're heading for a bunch of bars or a place where people are sculpting Buddhas or a place where people are pounding gold foil to go put on the backs of Buddhas. You don't know whether the people who are coming toward you, you know, are, 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 transsexual transvestites or people who are raising money for the poor in the in the far north uh, and the and the down and down south and the other thing about bangkok 
is, and the other thing about Thailand in general, is that it's so rigidly layered. The class system is so inflexible. You can only really travel in one direction, and that's down, which means that the people who are born at the bottom of that hierarchy have almost no chance in the world to rise. Um, and the thing that first occurred to me when I went to Bangkok, which I did more or less by accident, I, I was working on a movie in Japan, and uh, when it was over, I was going to go to, to, um, to the, I was going to stay in Japan for two weeks, and it was the coldest February in 20 years in Japan. So my travel agent, I said, send me someplace where I don't need a visa and it's warm, and she sent me to Bangkok. And she put me in what she thought, I suppose, was a nice middle-class hotel because it was a Ramada, uh, and I landed at five in the morning and went to bed and woke up about four in the afternoon, went outside and there's, here's all this neon. And it was at the foot of Patpong Road, which at that time was probably the most lurid street in all of Asia, red light district in all of Asia. Oh my gosh. Um, so my very first exposure to Bangkok was the people, both male and female, who are working at these bars and who have absolutely no choices at all and who it seemed to me made the best of a terrible situation with a kind of good humor that I couldn't understand at all. It's a lengthy answer, but, but, it's, but that's what it was. And, and the Thais have this amazing ability to greet everything with a smile. There are something like 17 varieties of Thai smile, and you learn after a while to distinguish among some of them, um, but they take everything with a kind of grace that sort of broke my heart. Um, and I started writing on that street in the daytime when it was very, uh, there were banks and, and pharmacies and stuff. It looked like any other street in the world with the neon off. And there was a little girl um, who kept coming to the window of the restaurant I was working in and putting her nose against it and watching me. And every time I looked at her, she ran away. And I finally realized that she wasn't looking at me at all she was looking at the screen of my laptop. This was like early, early 90s, and um, laptops were scarce, and she had that thing for screens that kids have. And finally, I got her to come in, and I sat her down, and when she was coming, she was coming in, I set up pinball on the machine, hmm. and I showed her how to hit the buttons, and then I went for about a 45-minute walk. And when I came back, she was gone. Uh, there were three packs of gum. She had been selling gum from a box that was hanging around her neck. Three packs of gum carefully piled in the center of my plate. And this absolutely astronomical pinball score. Uh, score. Oh my gosh. And, and we became friends. And she, she, she disappeared at the age of about 15, and I'm sure not to anything good. Um, but she's the basis for the little character called Meow, who's really the center of that series of books. Um, She's, oh, she's, she's adopted by my protagonist, Poke Rafferty, and his wife, Rose, who used to dance on Pat Pong. And she has gone in the books from 7 to 14, and of all the characters I've ever written, she's the one I'm closest to emotionally. Wow. Um, I don't mean that I resemble her emotionally. I mean that I'm close to her emotionally. If I could materialize her and adopt her for real, I would. And I decided a long time ago that the series will end when she's 19 and she moves out and leaving Poke and Rose in this 
apartment that's always felt so small to them with the three of them that all of a sudden just feels like their side, just empty mm-hmm. and echoing. And I think that's the end of the series. So in a way, the, the Bangkok books are a way to explore some aspects of Thailand, in part through the eyes of someone who is coming to understand things as she gets older and older and older. So it, she was just a gift, that's all. She was a stone gift, and if I hadn't met her, I never would have written the series. Wow. That's really, that's a really wonderful story. She was an amazing kid. Um, That box hung in front of her. There was a leather strap that ran around behind her neck. There was a wooden box like an orange crate. And later, after she'd come and sat down a couple times when I was getting up once, going to the bathroom, I realized that she was bleeding back there. The edge of that thing cut into her neck all the time. Oh, my God. And, um, and I went to the store. There was a department store called Robinson's. It has nothing to do with the American Robinson's. That's what it was called. And I bought about eight men's ties. And I brought them back, and I took the leather off, and I knotted the, the ties around so she had this, this soft thing around the back of her neck instead of this edged red leather strap. Um, and that was, like, the only contribution I could probably make to her life. But... Um, she broke my heart. Aww. Is the short is the short thing. She broke my heart when she disappeared. Uh, I was I was bereft because I know she didn't disappear to any place good. Yeah. Oh, that is that's quite a story. I, uh, you know, it's like you hear about this stuff, you read about it, but to live it like that as you did, it's just that had to be quite a an experience. You know, you see it. You see it at all levels, mm-hmm, and absolutely. and you see it. And you see, for example, unless you're tired of this, for for example, Thailand has a huge population of, of transvestites and transsexuals. The male to female ones are called katoi, spelled K A T H O E Y, and they're not. They're not. Uh, kicked out of society the way that they were here for a long time. I mean, my teller in the bank I use there is a transsexual. Um, But a lot of them are relegated to the, um, what they call euphemistically the entertainment trade, which means Mm -hmm. that they're working in bars. Mm -hmm. And a very, very fortunate group of them are are employed at the cosmetic counters in the great Thai uh, uh, department stores. So you'll be going through something that's like the equivalent of, I don't know, uh, Macy's, not even Macy's, but the really big ones in New York. Um, And you'll hear all this laughter. And you turn around and here's like five, what you would call lady boys, who are absolutely making up a woman who's sitting there, just making her up, you know, until she looks like a Klimt painting. <laughs> and having the time, having the time of their lives, and the woman's having the time of her life. And you look at this, and you think, you know, they they have an ability to find joy, um, in in whatever they're dealt by and large. And I admire that quality very much. I think that's something you you find in countries like that, and in mm-hmm. in societies like that. Even say within our own country certain social groups 
and so on, will simply <clears throat> find the joy in whatever way they can. Yeah, and it kind of makes makes me ashamed of myself. You know, I mean, I think all the time I kick myself because I don't have what I want and all the rest of that. I have more than 99% of the people in the world can even imagine. Exactly. Uh, and when you, when you see people who are disadvantaged and who have found a way to make the best of it, uh, it just leaves me sort of speechless with admiration. And it makes you think, it makes you grateful for what you do have. Mm -hmm. It does me. And, and faintly ashamed of yourself for not appreciating it. <laughs> uh, let's see. I was going to say, you also live part-time in Southern California. I do. And you've set your Junior Bender series there. So tell us a little about Junior and your plans for that series. Junior, first of all, I, I grew up between Los Angeles and the East Coast. It was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So, so Los Angeles is Los Angeles is like a dotted line for me. I was here for four years, then I was there for four years, then I was here for three years, etc. Um, but I've always thought that L.A. was an especially interesting city for two reasons. First, because it's got the film industry, which on the face of it is is nothing about except telling lies with elegance and style. Mm -hmm. And secondly, when the country was when the country filled up, it filled up from east to west. And there were a number of people who, whenever they hit a town, for one reason or another, after they stayed for a while, they kept going. Maybe because they weren't wanted, maybe because they had played out their tricks, whatever it was, they kept going. They kept going west. And when you got to Los Angeles, you couldn't keep going. Mm -hmm. So a lot of very dicey people stayed here. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. this, if you if you were a con man or you were whatever any one of those whatever those people are who were not welcome in the community after a certain period of time, you had run out of opportunities to go west. So LA has always had a really um, three or four dimensional population in terms of everything from from race to religion to ethics, and I love all of that. Um, and I, what I like about Junior is that he's he would he's one of those guys who would have kept moving if he could have because he's a crook, mm -hmm. um, and he's a burglar, a really good burglar who's almost always had the experience of being the smartest guy in the room, and that sort of attracted the attention of other crooks. And now, when a crook has a crime committed against him and he can't go to the cops. He hires Junior, so Junior has a sideline, usually unwilling, as a private eye for crooks. Mm -hmm. um, and that's particularly perilous, because if he gets close to whoever committed the crime, that person will try to kill him. If he doesn't get close to whoever committed the crime, his client will probably try to kill him. Mm -hmm. So the books are not only about solving the crime, but they're about this tightrope that Junior has to walk to be alive on the last page. Um, and they're enormous fun to write. I laugh myself stupid while I write them. <laughs> well, I read Crashed, and now I have to read more of them. Well, you know, they're, they're just so much fun. Crooks are so much fun to write because they don't have to be politically correct. Exactly. If they want to go from point A to point B and there's a wall in the way, they'll just knock down the wall. 
you know, and that's they're free of, of a lot of inhibitions that most of us, you know, are will not would not easily let go of, and that makes them especially fun to write. Uh, I also like the fact that in the most mundane uh, social interaction, there can be an element of danger. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking right now. I'm writing in this in the book I'm writing right now, which is called Night Town. There's a young woman, very nice young woman, who's a hitter. She kills people with a gun. And she's on Junior's side at this point. But he knows that when he's talking to her, he has to be a little bit careful. You know, I mean, she seems perfectly pleasant, but she has a real reputation for erasing people. So that makes her really interesting to write. Um, blah, blah, blah. It's It's... For me, it's an, it's an opportunity to write people who don't have to behave in the conventional way. Uh, and I frequently find a lot of that very funny. You know, I think, I think that there's a relationship between danger and humor in the first place. Um, when you think about the silent movies, a lot of the biggest laughs in the silent movies are averted danger. Mm-hmm. You know, Buster Keaton's train goes into the into the river, but he's but he gets out of it. People don't step on the banana peel until someone does. So I think it's that's a that's a dynamic you can play up pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very interesting. Um, God, I hope so because I talked about it for an hour. <laughs> 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 well, I thought it brought out a lot of the Chandler influence in you. There was a kind of Chandler feel to the. Um, to, to the to the writing, which I like. Yeah, well, he he's the guy. I mean, he is I said in that yeah in that blog I wrote for you that it was Margaret Mitchell who taught me that character was all that mattered. But it was Raymond Chandler who, when I was about thirteen, gave me the form I wanted to write in, which mm-hmm. is a detective story. And of course, the trouble with Chandler. <laughs> he makes it look easy. Yeah. You know, he makes it look. He makes it look so effortless when, in fact, it's really hard. It is, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, he's the guy as far as I'm concerned, for, especially since he wrote the same city that I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I will ask you about Pulp now. <laughs> sure. And it's the first time I had heard of Simeon Grist since I started with your um, Bangkok thrillers. And mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, and I wondered what you thought about the concept. Uh, what happens to Simeon uh, and all these discontinued series people in a world of e-books? <laughs> Do they mm-hmm. come back to life slowly? <laughs> or what? You know, I, it's, the thing about e-books, the thing about e-books is that once they're out there, Nobody works on them. I mean, we may we may put ourselves in the way of promoting them from time to time, but there's nobody printing and distributing new copies. Mm-hmm. There's no there's no need for new copies because it's essentially an electronic transaction. Mm-hmm. In pulp, I say there are these three or four realms of the imagination that keep characters alive, and only one of them is the reader. Mm-hmm. And in a sense, all you've got in the ebook is the reader and the text. It's not like a publishing, and the writers, if in, in the case of the Simeons, 
he's, he wasn't even being written anymore. So you don't have a writer, you don't have a publisher, you don't have booksellers, you've just got the book and the reader. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough. In, in, the, in the limbo that Junior finds himself in, after the last of his books is pulped, um, people who are in that situation are semi-transparent. Mm-hmm. And, and somebody says in the book, it's like, they're, they're like they hang around like moving curtains in front of a window. Yeah. Um, so they're on the way out. So, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah, it's the same kind of problem that I have with ebooks. Where I ask myself, okay, what's the um, what's the reversion date? <laughs> I know. Strictly, strictly writer talk, but you know, does keeping a book alive as, a, as an ebook mean that you can't go to the publisher and say, publisher and say, I want those rights reverted to me because you're not publishing it anymore? And that's an argument we're all going to have to have. Right. Anybody who's with a publisher, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it, it's very interesting. Um, I was thinking it also seems to sort of reflect a kind of um, questioning of the nature of reality, in a sense. Like, the idea of existence, and mm-hmm. who, who created us, and what we perceive, how accurate is it, and all that kind of stuff. You know, it has a kind of a Metaphysical, I guess. Absolutely. Which, which, yeah, which Junior gets, which, pardon me, which Simeon gets away with, gets away from as fast as he can. (laughs) When Madison says to her, how how do I know that I'm not being, he says, don't even, don't even go there. (laughs) Yeah. But that's the question. How do we know we're not being written? Exactly. By an author who has a very bad sense of humor. Right, and who may not have good things in store for us, you know, I mean, you got, you got to remember that uh, there are books, we always see ourselves, of course, as the central character of the book we're in, but there are books in which the central character really eats it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, being, knowing that you were written, which Junior, which Simeon figures out, um, actually before the book begins, but we sort of see him go through the latter stages of it, is profoundly dispiriting, because... A, you can make, you will totally understand why sometimes it took you so long to solve a pretty obvious case, mm. or why your dialogue was kind of lame, mm-hmm. you, you could have thought of something better than that. It's because the guy who was writing you wasn't very good. <laughs> but, but at the same time, it means that all your heroics aren't yours either. Exactly. What can you claim as you your know? own? Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's having... It's like having the carpet that you've stood on your entire life yanked out from under you, you know? It's fascinating. Well, it's an, a very enjoyable book, and I highly recommend it, as I recommend all your books. I mean, you well, just write you. so well. And uh, before I go, and I'm going to have to bring this to a close, before we go, I have to ask you about the Pleasure Fair and your brief oh, flirtation gosh. with the music industry. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, you know, I, I was go in on college. YouTube and just listen to some of those songs. <laughs> well, this this really this really dates me because I was in college, and all of a sudden, the entire nature of popular music changed because of a band called the Beatles. Nice. And what the Beatles did was to tell thirty million people, "You can write your own songs." Until then, that just wasn't the way it worked. So all of a sudden, everybody picked up a guitar and started writing songs, including three friends of mine and me. And, um, 
And we did okay, actually. We we toured with Sonny and Cher. We played we played big oh houses gosh. all over America. We made an album with Universal. Um, we made a little money, uh, and then we hit rocks because the record didn't really sell. Uh, one of us went on to be a gazillionaire as a member of a band called Bread, um, and and I had I made money for a while off. I still make money off Bread songs that I co-wrote. But you know, it was a it was an experience I wouldn't have missed for the world. I mean, it showed me a whole side of life that I never I never even could have imagined. Um, and it also opened up for me the. This sounds kind of metaphysical. The idea of what the relationship is between the entertainer and, and the audience, and this applies to writing as, as it does to anything else, how much you have to give them, how hard you have to try, how much you have to hold back. Um, so it all, it all in, you know, in the end run, in the end, like almost everything else we live through, it wound up being relevant to, to what I did later in life. But mostly it was just a huge amount of fun. That's awesome. But I'll never forget, I'll never in my life forget being in the car with my friend Rob, who went on to join Bread, and our song Morning Glory Days came on the radio, on KFWB, and Rob almost drove across the street into oncoming traffic. <laughs> I mean, we heard those first notes, and what, 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 and there it was. Oh um, my gosh. Anyway, anyway, very, it was a very high moment. Well, I can imagine. It must have been surreal. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? Um, yeah. Um, I'd like to say that as a writer, and you as a writer, and all of us who work at this well, I think, have the reader in mind pretty much all the time. This is kind of relevant to what I was just saying about about Pleasure Fair. We know that we owe them the best thing we can do. And we know that occasionally they're not gonna go for it. And that can be kind of heartbreaking, but it's incumbent upon us every time we sit down to work to give the reader who will eventually read these words the best we can, we can summon at the time. Uh, and that's part of the pressure of being a writer and it's part of the joy of being a writer. So. I just want people who read the books to know that they are, in a sense, at the table with us when we write them. You know, I mean, we really are foremost in our mind. So if people like my books, it's because I worked to make you like them, because I was thinking about you when I wrote them. And the same is true with you, and the same is true with everybody who sits down and does the best he can every day with a book. I couldn't agree more. That's a wonderful way of expressing it. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Well, it was my pleasure. And uh, with that, I will uh, bring the uh, program to a close by saying that, uh, again, reminding you that the Crime Cafe nine book set is 99 cents on Amazon and Smashwords until the end of July. What a deal. It is. Such it's a fantastic. deal. It yeah. is. Nine, nine novel length books for. Uh, I'm getting it as soon as I hang up. Awesome. Yep. Cool. Thank you very much, Tim. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and be sure and leave a review on Amazon. <laughs> sure thing. I'd appreciate sure thing. that greatly. 
And uh, with that, uh, I want to thank, thank Tim again for being on, and I will uh, be talking to you in two weeks. Take care.